opens in the first verse, we are reminded of the evil that has been done by the good that is being done to reverse it. So verse 1 shows us that there was evil because you can't have uh, a renewal without a falling away. Right. Right? If everything, if nobody ever fall away, there's no renewal. There's just right. continuation of goodness. Right? So in chapter 31, in verse 1, we see an image of what has happened in the past administration. Mm -hmm. And we see that Israel is now, pre everybody in Israel is present. Why, we talked about this last week, why is it that Hezekiah, king of Judah, why did he make a communication to all of Israel, which includes both the northern ten tribes of Israel as well as the southern two tribes of Judah? Why is the king of Judah making communications to all Israel at this time? It's something that came up last week. Who remembers? Who remembers? I don't want the pastor to answer. I'll give you a hint. Somebody came from the north. They came. They're trying to okay. fight against Judah. Mm, close. That's warmer than where we were before. Let me give you a, 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 a hint. I already gave you a hint. Chess. Think of chess. How do you win a game of chess? Queen. King. Take that. Take out the king. Who's the king of Israel while Hezekiah is the king at this time? Hezekiah is in Judah. Who's in Israel? Who's the king of Israel? You're right. There is no, there king. Is no king of Israel. Oh. Assyria has come down from the north. Oh, right. There's no king. So the king of Judah is writing a communication to all Israel. This is what the pastor was saying in the, in the opening, in the introduction there. The king of Judah is talking to everybody because there is no king of Israel. The people of Israel come back down. It has been generations by this time since Israel has been down to Judah to worship God. All right, they've been up there worshiping, not Dagon. Dagon is the Philistines. It's uh, the one begin S S. Okay, I can't I can't remember the name. He was it was Baal. Baal was up there, <coughs> and then there was. It's on the tip of my tongue. Her name begins with an A. But anyway, Israel is, is, is worshiping all these other gods. And the God, of, the God of Israel is not being worshipped by the children of Israel. Right. So Hezekiah Asherah. writes out. Hmm? Asherah. Asherah, I think is her name. Or Asherod, Asherah, I think something like that. Those are the we names. Can more. I'm sorry. Just we can go on it later. So at this time, Hezekiah is positioning Israel and Judah to worship who? God. The one true God. And in verse 1, we see that Israel has now gone down. They're breaking up the images, the idols, that are not only in the land of Israel and Judah, <coughs> my apologies, but they're also taking idols out of the temple because the temple was filled with idols the groves were, were uh, grown up where people were worshiping. There were sex gods being worshipped, sex acts happening in those groves. The high places were built up where um, idols would be placed there and people would worship other gods there all throughout Israel. And in the very house of God, by the time 31, not 31, that's where we are now. By the time chapter 30 starts, 
the house of God is boarded up and nobody's worshiping God. But by the time we get to 31, all of that's changed. The temple has been opened. The idols are destroyed. And the people are cutting down the groves. They're throwing down the high places and taking all of the altars that are not of God out of all of Benjamin and Judah and out of the temple. So in 31, we see a picture of restoration and renewal happening. And we can understand that there has been sin because of that. By the time we get to verse 2, what do we see happening in verse 2? Instruction manuals. Instruction manuals for the Levites. So they can know how things are supposed to be done. Exactly. Instructions are going out to everybody how to worship God. Now, if you remember last week in chapter 30, when the people of Israel, who have been separated for God for generations by this time, came down to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. to the temple to worship God, even the priests that came down, they didn't remember how to do their job. Yeah. They did yeah. not properly cleanse themselves. So they were trying to participate in the not just the feast and the festival, but the worship of God, and they weren't worthy to do it. So King Hezekiah had the other priests teach them, teach the ones who arrived, how to worship God. They cleansed the priests and then the Levites. Who are the Levites? The priests. That's, That's where the, the priests priest. come. That's where the priests come from. It's the tribe of Israel from which God said, this is where my priests are coming from. They're coming from Le the tribe of Levites. All right, the Levites came out and then they showed everybody what the law was, how to properly cleanse yourself for the, for the worship of God, and how to prepare the, the, uh, the sacraments and the sacrifices for the worship of God. In, in, chap in verse 2, we're now seeing discipleship. So whereas chapter 31, ver verse 1, opens up with the reminder of sin by the renewing that we see happening, not just talk happening, but actual renewing happening. By verse 2, we now see discipleship going on. The instructions are being given to the priest and to the people how to worship God. Now, there's a, who, how many of you have seen the movie uh, Sin of a Woman? All right, there's a part where Al Pacino in this movie, he's a blind, uh, I think he's a, he was a uh, colonel. There's a blind colonel, and he's uh, out of the military and everything. Because of the events in the movie, there is an opportunity where he can teach a young boy some things about life. And um, the movie is way more complicated than what I'm saying now. But for our purposes, and for the example we're giving, there's uh, the Al Pacino's either brother-in-law or brother gives him a salute. Who knows what a salute is? All right. A salute is called, is, is what's known as military courtesy, all right? A military courtesy is something that a lower-ranking person pays to a higher-ranking person. And one of the military courtesies are walking on the left side of somebody who's a higher rank of you. You stand on their left, you put them on the right. Who knows where that tradition came from? Who remembers? We talked about this like years ago when we did Revelation. Say it again? We did Revelation. The sword. the sword. 
So most people are right-handed. When you're right-handed, you draw your sword from the left side. And when you pull your sword, there's a chance if you're not so skilled, you might hit the person on the left side. So as a lower ranking person, you're not going to stand to the right of somebody higher ranking because higher ranking people in the day that the tradition was established were usually more skilled than the lower ranking person. So you would put the more skilled person on the right because they at least knew how to draw their sword without killing the guy beside them. You see? So the tradition is if somebody is ranked higher than you, you stand, you stand to their left and about a half a step back. So that when they drew their sword, you're out of the way. It's a tradition. It's military courtesy. The tradition of the salute came from the time when uh, soldiers wore armor. And you, your face was covered. Sometimes you wore sigils uh, or in, uh, heraldry on your uh, armor to signify what house you were from. But as one knight approached another, they couldn't see each other's face. So they would lift their visor so that his... The approaching knight could see who it was and the face of the person that was there so they would know this person doesn't have evil intention toward the person approaching. Well, the motion of lifting up your visor when visors were taken away still remains. So as one approaches a higher ranking officer, one shows there's no, no kind of harm or ill will towards them and you pay them the proper military courtesy of a salute. And then you don't let your salute down until they salute you. And once they salute you, everybody pulls their salute down together. A military courtesy is a sign of respect. But you can give military courtesy to a person you don't respect. And what had been happening in Israel is there, or in Judah, by this time, there were traditions and that there were rituals that were like military courtesy. And people were giving that courtesy without the respect behind it. So people were doing the traditions, following the law, the letter of the law, but they weren't giving worship. It was like a salute to someone that you don't respect. Now to put these analogies together and to tie it all together, tell me who was the one giving the courtesy and who was the one not receiving the respect? Israel was giving the courtesy and God wasn't receiving the respect. What was that? Israel was um, uh, giving uh, the courtesy so the, and God wasn't getting the respect. Exactly. Exactly. So for generations by this time, Israel was separated from God. Those who were left in Israel that were worshiping God were amongst the rest of their kindred who did not respect God through their life through their actions, through their words even. There was a lot of traditions going on down south in Judah where people were paying to God sacrifices. They were paying to God offerings of their money and offerings of their words. Sometimes even offerings of their time. But they weren't giving him their what? Their heart. What does God want from people? What is the whole obligation? What does God want from, from humanity? What do, we, what do we think God wants from, from people? He wants us to choose to love Him, you know, and love ourselves. He doesn't want it to be a matter of, um, you know, He makes us do anything. He wants us to have the option 
to reject him, but to choose him. How do you know that the option is there if the opposite never happens? God says that we have a choice and he wants us to choose him. But if nobody ever didn't choose him, how do you know that you really have a choice? There's a, there's a, a, a philosophical exercise. I think it was John Locke that, that brought this one out. Imagine that you're sitting in a chair, but you're tied and you can't get up. No matter what you do, no matter how you try, you cannot force your way out of the chair. You, that chair is placed in a room and you're placed in the chair. Are you there against your will? More than likely, yes, right? Because if you want to go, you can't. But what happens if a person that perhaps your mother or your father, your grandparent had died and then they show up in the room? You probably really try to get out then, right? Mm -hmm. But what if they were just there and a person that you just, maybe not a dead person, but someone that you've wanted to see your whole life, they sit down beside you and you're in the chair and you can't get up, but they're there and you don't want to get up. Are you there still against your will? No. But if you want to go, you can't go. But that's only when you want to go. But that's only when you want to go. But even if you don't want to, even if you don't want to go and you're trapped, you're, you're tied to the chair, are you there against your will? Yeah. But, well, not if it's not against your will. Like in that moment, if you don't want to go, then it's not against... I guess I would say your immediate will because you want to be there mm -hmm. and in a way the ropes are helping you be there because maybe initially you want to go because the person's like a ghost or something and you may initially try to get away but if you're there and you end up enjoying it then the ropes are assisting in what you really want to do so it's like a, a, a transference that happens based on what you want at the time so let's move, I, I agree with you, let's move from Old Testament to New Testament. The, the scripture says in the New Tes Testament, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. When we look at the rules and the constraints that God gives us as Christians, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other. You, 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 before you get married, you're supposed to not do this. After you get married with somebody, you're supposed to do this with that person and not with all these other people. You want something that's not yours, you can't just go and take it. Or if somebody has something you want, you can't covet or want that from them. These constraints that God gives us, these Old Testament laws, these rituals and traditions, they constrain us only if we don't want to be where they keep us. But if we let this mind being us that is also in Christ Jesus, we find that these constraints help us to be the people that we want to be anyway. You want to be true to your mate? Follow God's law. You want to not be hurting because somebody else is blessed? Follow God's law. You don't want to go to jail? Yeah, follow God's law. Mm -hmm. there, there, there are certain perks to following God's law. But when we change our perspective, we find that these constraints that at one time made us stay against our will in a place... When our will changes, we find that those constraints help us to do what we want to do anyway. Mm -hmm. We are with the person we want to be anyway. God is holy and he cannot let sin in his presence. 
sin burns up in his presence and everything attached to it. So God will remove himself from our presence so we don't die. But if we let this mind be in us that was also in Christ Jesus, those constraints make it so that we can sit here and be in God's presence and not be destroyed. 